great treats for mu- for movie fans, comic book fans alike, is that our great heroes from the Marvel and DC universe have been a part of some stellar and some not so great motion pictures that looked awesome on the big screen. And tonight we celebrate the one that started it all in the modern era for the Marvel studio. Hello, my name is Mark Radledge. I'm the Mandated Reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. And this is the Long Road to Ruin. Back in the saddle again. So tonight we are going to tackle the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, one, two, and three. And of course, I can't do it alone. I gotta have my broadcast partner in crime, Mr. Movies himself, and 97 other things that he does. Here he is, to Sean Comer. How you doing, sir? I am back. I am here in the Sean Cave, and God damn, does it feel good to be here again. Miss you, Sean. We got a very exciting show today. Now, when we, when you and I first uh, decided to come up with this and and put this podca- podcast together, we didn't plan on having guests on. We didn't plan plan on having uh, third panel members, if you will. Uh, it was just going to be me and you batting around movies, talking about this and that. But I'll tell you what. Once we started it, um, the line started to form to the left of people that we knew through social media and four one one that wanted to be a part of it. So tonight we have a very special guest, uh, my main antagonist <laughs> from the 411 Ground and Pound MMA show. He is the Wildcat, the Vile One, the MMA reporter on the scene, coming in from the corporate jet in Hollywood, if you could, Mr. Jeff Harris. How you doing, Jeff? Excelsior! Mark, thank you for having me on tonight. This is very special. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Jeff. Jeff, real quick, what's um, now? You you begged and pleaded and cajoled and bribed and everything else, wanting to be on this. What's the big connection to Marvel for you? Why? Why so serious? When I first moved out to the Communist Republic of Los Angeles, uh, when I my first job out here was as an intern at Marvel Studios at their Beverly Hills office. So I was sort of at the ground floor of Marvel Entertainment right before the release of all their big uh, pictures when they were just starting out as an independent movie studio. This is uh, pre-Disney buyout. So uh, this was right as they were gearing up for uh, Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk, which later became, you know, Thor, Captain America, and the Avengers. Um, Not only that, as a a Comic-Con attendee, I waited in line for hours to get into the Spider-Man 3 panel with uh, all the stars. I was in line, uh, so if you search uh, on YouTube, you can probably find me asking questions at that panel. It was an absolute nightmare, but at the time, and to get to, to, get to see that panel and all, all the stars and, and Sam Raimi and all these people I worshipped was... Uh, you know, it, it was mind-blowing. So um, Now, I've, uh, I'm a lifelong comic book fan, and as I said at the beginning of this show, um, the big thrill for me back when, now we all, as we all know, I'm about a million years old. You know, I was around, uh, I, I was around before Jesus was born. And um, I grew up reading comic books. Spider-Man was one of my favorites. It was one of my dad's favorites. It's one of the, you know, he had Spider-Man 1, Grandma threw it out, these things happen. But, you know, for, for like, as I said, it was a big thrill to see Spider-Man come to the big screen in a way that did it justice. So um, that's where we're going to begin tonight. Well, before, before you begin that, a, a little sure. history lesson, actually. The funny thing about that, about it being brought to the big screen, is actually that was a longer time coming than a lot of people realize. Uh, the fact is, and I must preface this by absolutely 
pimping out the two disc editions of Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 just for the pop-up trivia factoids. They were a huge source of my research for this podcast. Um, actually, ads were running in the trades way back in the 1980s calling it the movie of the decade. Uh, of course, you know, that title eventually ended up going to Tim, Bur- to Tim Burton's Batman. And even after that, uh, James Cameron, post-Terminator 2, uh, wrote a treatment for a Spider-Man movie. So right bef- so before this was ever a glint in Sam Raimi's wonderful, blessed fanboy eyes or Sony's greedy little pupils, this this really passed through a few hands first, and there, there's a lot of wondering of what might have been had it been made back then, as opposed to, as opposed to hitting theaters in 2001 or 2000, 2001 or 2002. 2002. Thank you. I thought I was about a year off. Um, yeah, I mean, like a lot of other Marvel projects, a lot like X Men, a lot like Fantastic Four, a lot like a decent Punisher and Captain America movie. Uh, it was a long time. It, this it was a it was indeed a long road that didn't at first look like it was headed to ruin, but well, we'll get to that. Yeah, let me let me say this. It took a, it took Marvel and DC for that matter. Well, you know, well, let me let me go back. It took Marvel a long time to get a decent picture on the big screen. We all know about if you go to if you go to like comic book conventions and other cons, you can always find the one dealer who has the VHS of the old Fantastic Four movie that looks like utter garbage. <laughs> you've got the Captain America made for TV movie. Um, you've got I think there was some Spider-Man's. I mean, they tried and and the thing that always held them back. These things could have had decent scripts, maybe possibly kind of sort of but the thing that always held them back and make them laughable was the special effects. They never could get the special effects uh, right until uh, the uh, modern special effects in the, in the 2000s when you have CGI, and you can make it look really, really pretty. And once you had all of those tools at your disposal to make a pretty-looking movie, you could then go back and focus on telling an actual story. Spider-Man was not really the trilogy that started it all. What really got the ball rolling was X-Men. I think Spider-Man was predestined to be what it was in the cinema no matter what. But X-Men, suddenly you had you had an acclitic, uh, a critically acclaimed director in Brian Singer, a guy who, who was doing sort of like these very interesting uh, indie art films like At Pupil and The Usual Suspects uh, doing, doing X-Men. He, he cast legitimate actors um, so I mean, you had you had that sort of changed the perception of what these movies could be. You had Superman in the seventies and Superman two and Batman, and you had those movies, but those were sort of exceptions to the rule. And X Men was sort of was at the time sort of wow. Here's here's uh, the four color comic book characters, but it's this very dark and serious movie. Magneto is a Holocaust survivor. I, I, I mean, the movie opened with uh, seeing Magneto's past in a concentration camp. We never saw that in a comic book movie before. So, and then, I think ultimately, what would happen with Spider-Man would have happened eventually, no matter what. Uh, but I'm very happy it did happen the way it did this, this first time around. Yes. Okay. Let, me, let me say this. Um, part of the reason why I said it really started with Spider-Man, and you're absolutely right, X-Men got the ball rolling, but as far as um, 
the, you know, what, what people perceive as the modern age of, Mar- of Marvel films. I think Spider-Man is what launched it into the stratosphere solely because, one, they hit every note right in the beginning, but also because Spider-Man's the most, one of the most iconic characters in the Marvel Universe. Yes, we all know who the X-Men are. Yes, the X-Men are beloved. But if you go to ask non-comic book fans who they heard of, um, they're not going to say Wolverine. They're certainly not going to say Storm or Cyclops. They're going to say Spider-Man when given that kind of a choice. Um, Spider-Man's probably the mo- one of the most well-known uh, characters in the Marvel Universe, and that's, that's the part of what led to that movie doing so well is that it brought in not just comic book fans, but it brought everybody. I mean, everybody went to go see Spider-Man. And so, it, you know, as far as auditions go for further movies, they had to nail this one. They had to hit it out of the park. I think they did an excellent job as far as the initial casting. You know, William Defoe is, is a, a stellar actor, and he chewed up the scenery as the Green Goblin. Well, not, um, not only as a character, but let's give Willem Dafoe and uh, to kind of foreshadow a little bit Alfred Molina, Spider-Man 2, some considerable credit and say yeah. to guys that threw themselves physically into being ready for this role above and beyond the call of duty. Let's not forget, folks, Willem Dafoe is no spring chicken by any means. Um, he, he is not nor was he really then. And yet, in Spider-Man, he insisted on doing almost all of his own stunts. Because right, let me let, let, let me throw this in there. This is a this is a departure from say someone like Jim Carrey who was doing an impression of Frank Gorshin. You know, one of my major problems with some of the Batman villains and really villains in a lot of these comic book movies is is they get they just kind of go crazy wanting to play you know evil villain guy and they stop acting. And in this one, I, I mean, like you said, William Defoe, yes, he, he was an evil villain, but he actually hit the pitches right. There was some real, real chops there that made that character come alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, um, I feel that I feel that Molina did the same in the second movie. Yeah. And a lot of guys have those have those acting chops, as we'll talk about in Spider-Man Three. Just about the only really great thing I can say about this movie is I cannot praise Thomas Hayden Church enough for really getting the most out of the adaptation of the Sandman's origin story. Yeah. But uh, but just sticking with Spider-Man 1 for right now, um, Defoe, coming from his uh, theater background, as he does, and being so classically trained, he saw the physical imperative um, in really bringing the Green Goblin to life, and he saw that if he was to really get into that character, that was indeed going to have to be him up there on the glider, him underneath that awesome stylized armor. And he really does such an outstanding job of kind of doing, well, what for, for lack of a more immediate comparison comes to mind, we'll just call it the Gollum Smeagol thing. Of sure. just, especially the mirror scene, transitioning so swiftly from Norman Osborn to Green Goblin. Um, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the leads here now. You know, and when we were talking just before the uh, the show, you, you had some issues with Miss Dunst, but uh, so I want to give you an opportunity and Jeff an opportunity to speak on that. But let's let's go let's go right to. Um, the star of this thing, the person who had to carry three motion pictures pretty much on his shoulders, and that's Topher Grace. Sorry, Tobey Maguire. You're absolutely right. That was a misspeak. I meant Tobey Maguire. Yes. <laughs> Peter Parker, Tobey Maguire. Good fit. You know, did you think he was able to carry the movie as well? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you know Tobey, I think, but Tobey Maguire 
was a fantastic choice for this movie. I loved him in the role because he was not... Before this movie was coming out, people were talking about Leonardo DiCaprio. And Hang on a second, Jeff. Jeff, Jeff you, I don't know if it's your connection or not, but you're under, you, sound, you sound like you're underwater. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's Jeff because I was hearing that too. Uh, let me try and call back in, okay? Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, as soon as Jeff calls back in, I'm bringing him back into the conversation. But pick up where Jeff left off there. Um, Tobey Maguire. Um, yeah, Tobey Maguire, go. Yeah, uh, you know what? Right now, if I had to cite two people who absolutely, as I said, just absolutely jump right off the Marvel page as being letter-perfect in every possible way for their characters, it would be, well, J.K. Simmons, actually, as J. Jonah Jameson, who yes. steals every scene he's in in all three movies. Mm-hmm. But all there is just nobody more perfect for this role than Tobey Maguire. And I can't make this case more than by differentiating him from what was an admirable but inappropriate performance by Andrew Garfield in The Amazing Spider-Man. Okay, Spider-Man from the get-go in Marvel has been an awkward, put-upon nerd. He's been poorly socially adjusted. He's been very, very intelligent. But just he, he is your quintessential geek. And that's one of the reasons it's so imperative that he come across that he come across that way. In the Amazing Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield played him as a skateboarding hipster, uh, who, while maybe not Mister Popular, while maybe not the talk of the school, the talk of the town, certainly wasn't really disliked or shoved around by anybody except for Flash Thompson. And it didn't really make for quite as effective or true a transition. Uh, it felt like they were maybe playing a little bit more to the ideals of the ultimate universe. Um, and one of the things that I one of the things I really liked about about uh, Tobey Maguire's performance as both Peter Parker and the direction of Sam Raimi and the screenwriting of Spider Man is. The thing that differentiates Marvel characters, Marvel superheroes from the DC universe, most of them at least, is Marvel says, okay, it isn't enough to say uh, what happens when you take somebody and give them superpowers and they decide to go be a superhero. Let's follow what they do. Let's watch watch them beat people up and defeat villains and stuff. That isn't enough. These are still people. And it's important to remember that. So what happens when you give an, a perfectly average person, or maybe above average person, um, a special power? How does that change their life? That is, right. the, that is the essence of Spider-Man. It's let's take a kid who is socially awkward, who is a nerd, who has, you know, who's an or, whose um, parents have died, uh, who's got all these problems, and let's give him a bunch of superpowers and then see what he does with them. How does that affect the way he thinks, the way he feels? I know everyone, and we're going to get to it eventually. That's the big finale of this thing is Spider-Man 3. But that is the thing that makes, I think, every one of the Spider-Man movies really, really special is that Sam Raimi never loses focus on what really makes Spider-Man tick, and that is... He is that is how does this thing affect his life? Well, right. it isn't... Exactly, and and that is what Toby does to the letter. He's always playing to the evolution of Peter Parker, and really making that more the story of these movies almost than what's going on 
with Spider-Man. If you look at it from Spider-Man 1 to 2 to 3, you really do find Peter Parker in a different place personally in each of those movies. And it's what makes the stories as strong as they are in 1 and 2 and is one of the things that, God love it, tries valiantly to hold Spider-Man 3 together. Um, but also, again, I'm going to point to actually the devotion to the character, and that is that Tobey Maguire notoriously, who is who is not a big, imposing guy, nor should anybody who's playing Spider-Man be, um, but he really went above and beyond to really whip himself physically into shape um, to look like somebody whose body had been enhanced even as even as much as it was, and as little comparably to other heroes, um, by the radioactive spider bite. And that's you know, that's that's telling right telling right there really how into the character he got and how much he understood how he was gonna have to transform over the course of not just the first movie, but eventually of two and three as well. Let, let me so, talk a little bit about what, what I think people's problem with um, all three of the Spider-Man movies, but especially three. Um, and I think this is a problem that sort of flutters around a lot of superhero movies. And that is this. People think, I think people forget these are movies. I think what they want is, look, a comic book, a, a regular book, these are different animals than a motion picture, as is television. And I think what happens is people go into a movie that's about a comic book character, and they expect the comic book to just come to life, you know, to have the sort of immersive experience that Peter Jackson wanted you to have in The Hobbit. Um, and so in that, and we talked about this with Rocky, look, film has a structure and unless you're really, you know, one, of, one of these sort of more artsy fellows, the structure is pretty consistent through most movies. It isn't enough for them to just fight villains. They have to go through personal struggles. And I think, and this is what I'm getting to, I think the struggle that people have with these is they just want to see Iron Man blow stuff up. They just want to see Spider-Man fight Venom. This is what they want to see. And however it is you're going to get them there... Um, they're they're okay with as long as you get them there. And the stuff that the, the good stuff, the stuff that makes a movie stellar, you know, the feelings, the emotions, the arc that the character has to go through, despite all of the action, isn't something that a lot of people have a lot of time for. Which makes me laugh because I don't understand then why people hated Green Lantern. Green Lantern was exactly what that was. It was here. Let me take the comic book, throw it up on the screen make a lot of fight scenes, omelet, perfect. I, and, and then people complained that it was a shitty movie. But I think this is the problem that a lot of people then had, um, like I said, with, with Spider-Man and some of these other movies, is not enough, not enough fighting, not enough action hero, too much of the human element. And it drives me crazy, because then what is film supposed to be if not ha to have that human element? And let me link this to one, one final thing. If you write a character who is well-formed, well-constructed, but is just an awful human being, that's not the fault of the actor, okay? That's the, that's the writing, that's the directing, that's not Kirsten Dunst's fault, okay? It's not Kirsten Dunst's fault, that's the way they wrote Mary Jane. And I don't remember enough of the comic book to know if Mary Jane was really like that or not. 
Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get to my mound of problems with Kirsten Dunst's portrayal of Mary Jane. Thank you. Okay, but uh, but but that's my thing. I watched all three of these, and I saw what they what they decided to do with Mary Jane. They made her very self centered. Which here's the thing: they made her a girl. You know what I mean? They absolutely made her a girl in every one of those situations. A really unlikable girl, unfortunately. Uh, a girl that you know, the, the girlfriend that we all hate, that we you know that we've had at least in our life. Maybe you even married her. Who the hell knows? But it's it's the one bitch in your life that you just like. Seriously, the world doesn't revolve around you. But she would beg to differ. That is the way they wrote that character. And that is Sam Raimi took. Uh, the elements of a comic book and decided, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make real movies out of this. Movies where characters have internal conflicts and problems. Uh, issues that they have to deal with beyond um, supervillain A wants to take over the world. And even in, in the stuff where you had to deal with the supervillain wanting to take over the world, uh, there was good motivation there. So, let me talk a little bit about why I don't have a major problem with Kirsten Dunn's portrayal of Mary Jane. She, I, Kirsten Dunn's been in a lot of movies, and I've seen quite a few of them. <laughs> and most of the movies that I've seen her in, she, I, I think she's got a good range. I think she's uh, a fairly good actress, uh, played a variety of different roles. I don't, no, nothing really jumps out at me as being particularly awful. And I felt like her portrayal of Mary Jane Parker, uh, Mary Jane Watson, rather, was consistent throughout the Spider-Man trilogy. That said, I think a lot of people had an issue with her because of the character, and they were not able to separate the character from the actress. So where people are having this really, really negative reaction to the character of Mary Jane, they're sort of projecting that onto Kirsten Dunst, which I think is a little unfair. Um, Sean's right, though. The, the, uh, the, the other characters in the movie, uh, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, phenomenal performance. Um, and it's 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 one of those beats throughout the entire trilogy that kind of stays constant. It's a nice thing to continually go back to because he's the same character throughout the whole thing. Um, I especially like in the second one where uh, Spider-Man goes away for a while and he has this moment of reflection uh, about you know he drove Spider-Man away and now when they need him the most he's gone and it's you know and he's blaming himself and then the moment Spider-Man comes back just picks up right where he left off. Ah, he's a thief. Get him. We're going to drag this guy over the coals. Um, but, you know, the characterization, I think, is important. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about uh, these movies with you, because I think there's a lot of unfair criticism of them, especially especially the third one. And we're going to get to that eventually. But I'm going to go ahead and move on to the... Um, before we go, actually, before we go on to Spider-Man Two, let me say this: one of the things that I noticed while watching the trilogy over again is, you know, they say in, in um, drama there's two kinds of drama: there's comedy and tragedy. And interestingly enough, and I thought it was an interesting choice for the first Spider-Man movie, it's actually a tragedy. It ends kind of on a sad note because what Sam Raimi did with the Spider-Man movies was he said, okay. Other than being an action-adventure comic book movie, we're going to make this 
a love story. They say it right at the beginning. The first note in the movie, the first line in the movie is, this story is about a girl. Again, this is probably what drove a lot of people nuts about Spider-Man, but whatever. It's the choice that they made, and it's perfectly acceptable. So, um, it's a love story. And it's about Peter Parker being in love with Mary Jane. Okay? The girl he can't have. And that's... Every action that Peter takes, every motivation that he has, is based on really two bases. One, he he wants Mary Jane. Very simple. He's in love with her. Everything he does is to try to get her to love him back. And then the other thing, of course, is, is, is the Spider-Man origin story of uh, Uncle Ben takes him to the library, and Uncle Ben is shot, and before that he says, with great power comes great responsibility, yada, yada, yada. Um, Peter allows the robber to get away, Robert shoots Ben Parker. Um, he is uh, then Peter is raked with guilt, and he is forever and trying to make up for uh, the worst decision he's ever made. So he's got these two motivating factors: one, Mary Jane; two, uh, he he must be responsible with the power that he has, and he must never let um, an opportunity to do good pass him by again. And that's it. That's all you needed for this guy to get him started. The movie progresses, and you've got him dealing with William William Defoe, and you know you've got him trying to figure out you know what is he supposed to do with all of this. And we get to the end of the movie. Um, at the, but at this point, Mary Jane's been with James Franco, who plays Harry Osborn. Um, what Peter realizes, of course, through the course of the movie, is that as long as people know that he is Spider-Man, the people that he loves will always be in danger. And so with that knowledge, you know, Mary Jane figures out at the end of the movie, though, it's sort of unsaid, that uh, Peter Parker and Spider-Man are the same, which is a little odd to me, because then later on, and I think it's the second or the third movie, I guess it's the second movie, she goes, I, I've always, you know, I knew you're Spider-Man, I've always known. Really? <laughs> it's a little odd, a little, little odd, a bit of an odd line, considering some of her behaviors throughout the, uh, the, the series, but whatever. Um... He says to her at the very end, you know, I can only be your friend, and that's all I have to give right now. And then he walks away from her. So the one person in, in this world, his, his almost sole motivation for everything that he does, he has to walk away from. That's tragic. That's, that, that, that's a sad ending, man. That's heavy stuff. And I go back to what I said initially about it, which is that... It is entirely possible when people go see a Spider-Man movie, that is not the ending that they want. They want the hero to get the girl. It's not that hard to understand. It's really not Kirsten Dunst's fault that that's the way her character was written, and that Sam, Sam Raimi decided that the thing that was going to hold this story together, what he wanted to do with the, well, apparently with the entire Spider-Man series, was it's a love story. It's a story of Peter Parker... Uh, you know, boy meets girl, boy wants girl, girl doesn't know boy exists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And while 
uh, testosterone-driven comic book fanboy dudes may not want to go to the movies to watch that sort of thing and may sort of make Kirsten Dunst the scapegoat of all of that. Not her fault. It's not her fault that that's the direction that they chose. And I think she does an admirable job of working with the material that she's given. Well, okay, let's uh, let's get a couple things straight kind of right off the bat about both Kirsten and Mary Jane. First off, Kirsten is not a bad actress. She's she's had her moments where she's actually looked very good. Obviously, there's interview with the vampire, good. Virgin Suicide, good. Her small role in Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind, good. And though, oh, and uh, her fantastic, hilarious performance in Drop Dead Gorgeous. Excellent, and those are just the ones right off the top of my head. I'm probably going to get Facebook posts from my friends rattling off a half dozen others she was good in. She was perfectly acceptable in Wimbledon. That being said, (laughs) two problems. First off, story-wise, okay, I get you wanted to go with the more recognizable heroine, but you got Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane Watson out of order, and it fucked up everything. You even had the audacity to basically top Gwen Stacy's death scene for a scene at the climax of Spider-Man. And while sometimes you can adapt and cut and paste some things from different storylines and have it work, after all, Christopher Nolan did it fantastically for three movies, okay, two and a half movies, no, that just that struck me as a slap in the face to something that was integral in Peter's development to just throw away, spoiler for all you comic fans out there, the fact Gwen Stacy dies as a result of Spidey's web. Your Honor, exactly the Your Honor as may I submit this to the court? If I, were to, if I were to take a survey of your average person who may or may not read comics and ask them, which one of these two broads have you ever heard of, Mary Jane Watson or Gwen Stacy, the answer is going to be, what's a Gwen Stacy? Uh, okay, okay, yes. I'm, yes, I'm fanboying, I'm being pedantic here, but I also think it would have made the story better. However, we're never going to know. Problem the second. Who... In every crispity, crunchity, blue fuck decided that the way to write Mary Jane Watson was apparently mildly, manically bipolar. (laughs) Okay, in defense of that, hang on, no, no, wait a minute, because you just threw that at the steps of a therapist, okay? I watched that movie, it went, makes perfect fucking sense, okay? Dad's abusive, wait, she... Single dad, abusive drunk, who, you know, and she's looking for love in all the wrong places. Look at what she does. She does exactly what a girl in that situation normally does and behaves that way. This is what I mean when I say I think people are not separating the performance from the character. Well, Kirsten Dunn played that role perfectly. Okay, here's the thing, though. It makes her for an obnoxious, unlikable character. Because yes, and I enough. never, I will, I will admit that watching this trilogy was the first time I had watched it in years, and the first time I saw it, I remember hearing all the bitching about Kirsten Dunst's performance as Mary Jane. I personally didn't exactly get what the problem was back then. Now I kind of see it. I kind of see how you have moments. Where, okay, maybe not bipolar, 
My last uh, point on this, hang on, because I want to address that, because that's an apples and oranges comparison. But, I, but we do have to move this along, and I, and I want to hear more about what... Uh, <laughs> I, I want to I get to Spider-Man 3 before I have to go to bed tonight. So it's an apples and oranges comparison. Here's why. Number one, two different characters. And I don't mean two different names. I mean two different characters. Here you have a young girl who is a, with a dad and a mom and multiple brothers and sisters coming from a completely different situation than... Uh, the way they portrayed Mary Jane Watson. And again, I'm going, we're, we're going back to the same point on this. But whatever the reasons were, and I don't know what other than they needed to do something with her to make her a fully formed character, you took a girl from a broken home and then gave her characteristics that may be common of a girl in a broken home, and then they took a girl in a full family and gave her characteristics of a girl in that family and said, okay, here's what happens when they meet a superhero. Go. Gwen okay. Stacy is not going to react the same way as Mary Jane Watson as they are portrayed in these two different movies. And I'm not saying I disliked Abby Stone's performance. I thought she was great. I thought it was one of the shining lights of that movie. But, this, but it's apples and oranges. Kirsten does that the time. She was the big gay girl. She became Sophie McGuire's girlfriend. She was fine and she was fine in the role. Um at at the at the time. That she played Mary Jane as she evolved over the course of the history of the comic. And people don't really understand that okay, she she had a dead beat dad and she was sort of a sad person and her whole like party girl persona, all of that was sort of an act. It was an act she put on because, you know, her life was so sad. And that was more of the style that Kirsten Dunst was playing with Mary Jane. And I know people were like, oh, she's more like Gwen Stacy. Well, there are parts of that, but it's really sort of Mary Jane actually evolved like 20 years later after her first appearance. Okay. I, l- allow me to concede this much at least. I will concede that she seems to have kind of found her rhythm in Spider-Man 2. Um, no, I was going to say, by Spider-Man 2, although for reasons that kind of still leave me scratching my head or hair color, had become woefully inconsistent. Uh, <laughs> oh, you nitpick. Hey, I let myself be pedantic occasionally. I will admit, her performance had balanced out by then. Um, and to the point that by Spider-Man 3, she wasn't quite as obnoxious. <laughs> okay. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that she's, she's the weakest part of all three movies, of all three movies, but she got better. The last point that I made, and then we're going to move on to Spider-Man 2, um, and probably give it a short shrift, but um, we're going to have to due to time constraints. I think that the reason why people have issues with it, and then by the time you get to Spider-Man 3, it's amplified, is when you go to see a superhero movie, you're not expecting to see a tragedy. And that's what Spider-Man really was. It was go, go, go to get the thing that you really, really want and then realize you can't have it. That's a heavy, heavy, sad story. And that's not maybe the thing that you want to do when you want to watch you know, a guy running around punching out villains. Jeff, what do you think about that? Do you think that, that kind of accurately portrays what, you know, what people were sort of feeling about Spider-Man? For the first movie? In total, but let's just stick with the first movie, yeah. I think the first movie was exactly what it needed to be. It introduced, uh, you know, Spider-Man to the movies. It was uh, 
you had his, you had his origin, you got his origin out of the way, you established the great power, the great responsibility, and you had you had all the men and elements you really needed for first Spider-Man movie, and the ending, you know, the ending was perfect to me because Spider-Man doesn't get the girl, and right. I mean, that sort of that sort of underscored everything that you know Spider. Spider-Man often in comics, he, you know, at, at the end of the day, he he goes off, he goes off. Things aren't really going well. Like Omni's in the hospital, uh, he's he's flat broke. He doesn't know, you know, but he keeps but he, he keeps going at it. He, he doesn't give up, and, right. and that's kind of what we all deal with. That's kind of what we all deal with in our everyday life, and that's why that's why we all love and appreciate and admire Spider-Man because. No matter what he's dealing with at the time, he never he never he perseveres. Okay, right, Sean, the, exactly. the the tragic aspect of Spider-Man, as I've uh, as I've laid it out, go. I just want you to get your yeah. response to that. Well, no, I I agree. I agree absolutely that it really did defy the nature of the popcorn movie. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't fall in to... And actually, it's it's funny that I would refer to it as, as that, now that I think about it, because um, 20th Century Fox, for all that they hit the ball absolutely straight out the park with the first two X-Men movies, um, it seems like every comic property they've tried after that, that's exactly what it's been. Even the ones that could have been more character-driven and and could have been played out in great dramatic fashion as tragedies like Spider-Man became nothing more than great wham bam beat up the beat up the villains popcorn movies, right? With just with just the right dashes, or as the case may be with the Fantastic Four heaping spoonfuls. In fact, you could practically call the first Fantastic Four fan service the movie. It was something that Sony did so very, very well with the first two Spider-Man movies and was really so encouraging. Then came Spider-Man 3, but we'll okay. get to that. We'll all right, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about Spider-Man 2. I think we can all agree Spider-Man 2 was the best out of all three. Yes? Yes, it was. Okay. So so let's talk a little bit about that. Now, they moved, this, they moved the story arc a little bit forward, um, the one thing I will say about Spider-Man 2 was I thought it was typical in this sense. It was, the, the second movie is always the one where... They, I, I've seen this in like Superman, the Superman series. I've seen this in some other ones. It's always the one where the, where the superhero wants to give the powers back. You know, something has happened. They're, 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 it becomes way too much weight. And the superhero just says, that's it. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, you know, in Superman 2, he literally gave him back. Spider-Man, he just stops being Spider-Man for a while. And then there's some great occurrence that happens that has to, you know, uh, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in, kind of a thing. And, and, and that was the, the hero arc uh, of this one. But um, I said this was, this, this was a love story in three parts. You know, boy meets girl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in this one... The uh, the arc is that, and I've seen this again in other movies too. Where you know here we have 
Peter Parker with the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he's got to make all of these great responsible choices. And what he and what he ultimately does is he deprives the people around him of being able to make the choices themselves. And at the end, Mary Jane says to him, "You know, I will make the choice." And, take, you know, and I will make the choice to, to take on the danger of being your love interest. And ultimately, she does, and he is whole again. So, um, I, like I said, sort of short shrift to the best movie of the series, but, Sean, some of your impressions, issues, etc., of uh, Spider-Man 2, things that you wanted to bring up. Well, you know, it's... It's giving it short shrift, but it's giving it short shrift because what do you say about a movie that prior to the Avengers and the Dark Knight, most people rank probably right alongside X-Men 2 as the greatest comic book movie ever made? It really, it tells the arc so perfectly, just as, just as you described. I, I couldn't sum up the arc of it any better than you did. It is the only one of the trilogy that is not a tragedy. Also, it is a comedy. It ends on a light right. note. The hero has... It is, the, it is essentially the second half of the first movie. The hero finally gets the girl. Right, exactly. And, um, and again, all credit to Tobey Maguire for the great weight that he gave the performance. But credit also to um, Alfred Molina for really bringing Doc Ock to life in fine fashion, but not really having to go the necessarily verbose route in which he was written for the book sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, and not really having to go the scenery-chewing Jack Nicholson or, dare I say it, in the best way, Willem Dafoe route in the first in the first movie. He actually played it with almost a measure of subtlety, and he's he became the second the second villain in this in these movies. And you know we'd add Thomas Hayden Church to this as the Sandman later, who really made Doc Ock somewhat of a sympathetic character by the end. Um, and really managed to bring the villain full circle and make him much more than just a cannon bomb. Right. That was, that, that was one of the things that um, I wanted to say. I mean, they really, they take great care in these movies to make sure, to, to some people's aggravation, that everyone has a backstory. Every you know that there are not you, you don't have Boris Badenov as your villain. You know that these are people. Now, I think they actually say in Spider-Man 3 is like we all have choices, um, and some people make poorer choices than others. And in some of these cases, you, you, you know, Marvel always had a thing for, you know, you accidentally, something happens to you. So, you, you know, you accidentally become the, hobgo- uh, the Green Goblin. You accidentally become Dr. Octopus. Um, you know, and maybe things would have been different had this choice been made or that choice been made. And I think that's what makes them great. It drove people nuts in Spider-Man 3 because it was like everyone had to have a backstory. But, again, that's movies, folks. Love them or, you know, love them or leave them. Any last words there about Spider-Man 2? Because if not, then you and I need to have an argument. As a lead in the Spider-Man three, that was meant. There was meant to be more movies, and so there was. It was not meant to end on the saddest fucking note possible, short of killing a main character. And unfortunately, there were just no more movies after that. Really, again, there's there's so little to say that hasn't already been said about these movies. But I do want to throw in one more guy, and that is James Franco. God love you. You were trying. It just, 
Yeah, if we're going to win, if we're going to yell at someone for their performance, it isn't Kirsten Dunst. It was James Franco. James James Franco didn't have much of a character, and what he had to work no. with, like you said, he was trying. Now, on that, we can call a Kirsten Dunst truce, because really, uh, Harry Osborne is a good, deep character to get into. You want to talk about somebody with some daddy issues. Um, that could have made a fine movie itself down the road. But yeah. unfortunately, because really, and I'm not quite the Spider-Man scholar that a lot of people are going to be. Um, should you listen to this, Cole Marentette, I know you're probably going to correct me on a million and one things. Please do it privately. <laughs> be be gentle. Um but no, really, his um, his legacy throughout the comics could have made a fine arc all their own. But instead, they meant well by working that the start of that genesis into the first movie. But it just didn't pan out so well because across the other two movies, they were trying to give so much time to, appropriately, the Green Goblin and Spider-Man 2... And to everybody else, their mother, their mother's dog, and their mother's dog's obedience trainer in Spider-Man 3. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, it, it, what the um, Ask a Ninja says about the Pirates movies. Everybody right. has a plot line. Right. That, that really, we just never got around to developing him as well. And James Franco was a fine actor. Really? No, he act, he so can't so act for crap in these movies. But, well, it's, but again, as you pointed out, be fair to your own standards, Mark. It's not like they gave him much to work with. It, all they gave him was just him being the equivalent to the guy in Mortal Kombat that pops his head up out of the screen every now and then just so he can say, Spider-Man will pay. No, no, no. no. I, I am being consistent. He, here's what I'm, I'm pointing out to you. Go, if you go back and you watch the scenes with James Franco, he delivers dialogue like... He's like a teenage stage actor. Okay, like, he's just yelling his lines, or like, or you know, or he's just mumbling them in some sort of guttural tone. But ultimately, it's like everyone else is acting around him and is in character and makes you believe who they are, who they really are. Hence the the hatred towards Kirsten Dunst. And there's him who who's just like acting. You know, he's, I, I don't. It, it's almost overacting. But it's also, but it's badly acting. He's just not believable. I, I, a couple of times, just wanted to get around to just asking him, and hopefully you'll get the reference here. I just wanted to ask him, Harry, does the sand get everywhere? <laughs> oh, God. Yes, now I'm getting your... Yes, yes, that is exactly what he's doing. Folks, if you haven't picked it up, he is, what's his face, Anakin Skywalker from the first three Star Wars movies. Of, of all the people you could have modeled your performance after, <laughs> you went with a combination of Jake Lloyd and Hayden Christensen. <laughs> you don't tell okay. me that is exactly right. If there's one thing you said on this podcast that I agree 110% with, it is James Franco in this movie is Hayden Christensen. That is the exact performance he gave in all three movies. Well, and yet amazingly, there would be, aside from the main cast as a whole, there would be one man in Spider-Man 3. One 
fucking little woefully miscast man. Uh, he what he was getting to was, of course, the casting of Topher Grace. How a movie studio can take what's probably a really really good idea on paper and screw it to hell. But let's um, let me do a little bit of vamping here and talk a little talk about Spider-Man Three while we wait for Sean to rejoin the cast. Now, I know everybody hates Spider-Man 3. I know that everybody hates the dancing in Spider-Man 3, and they call him Emo Man. I don't... Is it because of the hair, or is it because they spent too much time on the the emotional aspect of these characters and not enough on the fighting? I know that people felt like Venom was completely wasted on... Spider-Man 3 that, you know, the movie had enough with, um, as they called him, the new Goblin uh, in Harry Osborn and the Sandman. Uh, If you go back and you read some of the history of Spider-Man 3, as I did to prepare for this podcast, Spider-Man 3, unfortunately, in pre-production was a bit of a clusterfuck. Um, They meant for more movies. Uh, they meant for the vulture to be in it. There's <laughs> just a lot of things going on. And from what I understand, it was the studio that, because Venom was such a hot property and was a real moneymaker, they insisted on including Venom in this movie. Um, and, of course, you can't do Venom without doing the alien costume. And there's no way to do the alien costume story right. For those of you who are not comic book nerds, let me quick just give you a primer on the alien costume, the black, the, the, the Spider-Man black costume, as it's also known. Uh, back in the day, there was a comic book series uh, where they merged all the comic book heroes together into one story, and it was called The Secret Wars. They would continue to do stuff like this for multiple years, um, acts of vengeance and um, multiple other multi-comic book hero stories. Uh, Secret Wars was a story where they picked up all the superheroes and all the supervillains and they dropped them on a planet and I don't remember what the name of the planet was um, like a made up one and a character called the Beyonder who was a god basically said okay fight and through the course of all of the Marvel supervillains fighting all of the Marvel superheroes and this big old superhero war on a planet, I think it was called like Battle Planet or something, um, Spider-Man's outfit gets torn to shreds. So he uses the alien technology to give himself a new suit, and it gives him this living suit, symbiote, uh, which becomes the black costume. And when they finally do away with the whole Secret War series, and all the heroes come back to Earth, Spider-Man still has the black costume. In uh, in the Secret Wars comic book, it's revealed that, um, again, the living suit gives him greater strength, and um, as we all know, uh, Spider-Man in the comic books had to build his web shooters. They were not a part of his biology, as they did as they, they made a choice to do in the Sam Raimi trilogy. Uh, well, the suit itself used, produces its own webs. So there was a lot of motivation for Peter Parker to continue to use the suit when he got back to Earth. And over the course of a new a third book that had been created at the time, because uh, you had The Amazing Spider-Man, which was the original, and then you had The Spectacular Spider-Man, and then they created The Web of Spider-Man. 
And in the Web of Spider-Man book, uh, they did a lot of following Spider-Man as he would continue to do his thing with the black suit. Um, he would continue to uh, fight crime with the black suit. The problem was, and they got a little bit into this in the uh, in the movie, the suit was slowly taking over, and it was driving Peter to uh, continue to be Spider-Man, and the Peter part of his uh, being was being uh, was being reduced. <laughs> I was talking about sort of how Spider-Man 3 came together, that it was a bit of a studio clusterfuck. Um, what I was getting to was, just so I can link everything and, and bring you back in here, um, in, in 50 words or less, and I've gone well over that, it, it Basically, um, in the Web of Spider-Man book, uh, the black costume pretty much drove Peter Parker uh, into insanity and kind of made him be Spider-Man all the time. And um, at at some point or other, Parker figures this all out, realizes that that this is a living costume, a symbiote that is taking over his mind, and he goes to Reed Richards. They figure out that that sonic energy is what will... um, get the costume, will do damage to the costume, and they do that, and they get it off of him, and eventually the thing escapes, and it merges with Eddie Brock, but we'll we'll get to that in a moment. The point of all of this is you can't do the Secret Wars storyline in a movie about Spider-Man itself. That was a small part of a 12-part series, not to mention countless other comic books. So so if you're going to, as a studio, and and here's where I'm going to link to you, Sean, Here's the thing, and I call this the Judge Dredd effect. I used to just limit this to mask, no mask, star, you know, on a star. But it, it's really the, the, okay. the Judge Dredd effect is essentially this. You can, as a creative person, as a screenwriter, come up with a perfectly plausible uh, idea for a movie with fleshed out characters and everything else. And a studio will come and say to you, okay, but can you put this spider in there, this big ass mechanical spider? Okay, some of you may get that reference. <laughs> and, can, and can your hero have a gay, effeminate robot? And, um, and we have this thing that makes us a lot of money. Shoehorn that shit in there, too. And, oh, by the way, there's this really, really hot actor who's big right now. He had a series where he was, you know, where, and that series did a lot of money for us. So we're going to take him, and we're going to put him in this movie. Okay, he doesn't totally match the character. Okay, he doesn't match the character at all. But he's hot right now, so we're going to shoehorn him into this movie, too. Make him do something so that we can make some money off of this guy and how hot he is right now. And, oh, he wears a mask? Well, you, you can't pay all this money for this big, hot star and then fucking cover his face up all the time. That's just ridiculous. Well, why we even have him in the movie? Good question. That's the Judge Dredd effect. Okay, and people may not know what Judge which Judge Dredd I'm talking about. The, the 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 Judge Dredd that was so bad, Scott Ian, who wrote a song about Judge Dredd, didn't want any part of the movie. This is, of course, the Sylvester Stallone abortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, expect, I expect you to do to cover this with Jeremy, by the way, in the man cave. <laughs> yeah, uh, we we are not talking about the awesome uh, Carl Urban Judge Dredd. No, we're, we're talking, we're talking about, about the Sylvester Stallone. When you have all of those factors, when you have the Judge Dredd effect, which has completely overtaken your movie, and you have to remember, while you and I you know, sit here on the fringes doing our little podcast with the, with the fucked up technical difficulties of using third-person software, um, and, we can, and we can curse and we can be avant-garde and we can go against the grain and we can do all kinds of crazy things, um, we also aren't getting paid. 
okay? I don't know about you. I don't get money for this. So when Sony goes to Sam Raimi and says, here, here's oodles of money. <laughs> here's, a big here's a big bag of, you know, Scrooge McDuck gold coins. Go make us a third hit. Oh, by the way, we have demands because we're, we're a studio. I think... <laughs> I think you have to, as a Christian, as a good person, as a smart person, as a movie person, you have to say, I forgive you for fucking this movie up, and just accept it for what it is. Your witness. To a, to a certain extent, yes, I will agree with that. It doesn't change the fact that it's still an awful, awful movie. But it's let not me lay an this awful out. movie. It's not well, an awful let, movie. But let me lay a few things straight out first, though. Get the okay. positive things out of the way. First off, yes, I agree that we must cast minimal blame for this or to be somewhat neutral. Responsibility, we'll just put it that way, <laughs> at the feet of, God rest her soul, Laura Ziskin and Sam Raimi. Because, yes, Sony had demands. Uh, they decided to put on the big Mr. Moneybag pants and throw their weight around a little bit. And yes, that meant that they got to talk Sam Raimi into doing a storyline and a character that Raimi vehemently objected to doing at all. And I have to think that's at least partially because it's really hard to do Venom slash Eddie Brock in the style of the very successful way that he did the previous two villain stories. So, there's that fact. As you pointed out before, I'm also going to acknowledge Toby, James, Kirsten, J.K., Topher. You worked with what you worked with what they gave you. You worked with what they gave you. You couldn't have done more than that. To say otherwise would be like saying that it was Jackie Earl Haley's fault that the Nightmare on Elm Street remake sucked. It wasn't. He was a fine Freddy. They just gave him fuckity-fuck-all to work with. Now, on the other hand, to point out another positive, Thomas Hayden Church. Wow. You actually, and I'm saying this despite the fact that you pulled a complete, what should have been unnecessary retcon of the first Spider-Man movie, you actually took that origin story and actually made him the most compelling character in the movie. And oddly enough, people hate the, it's hated everything about the Sandman. People hated his performance. People hated his storyline. They hated the backstory. They hated the sort of circular narrative of him having to do with the murder of Uncle Ben. Hated everything to do with it. Okay, okay. I will hand people hating the circular narrative. I will hand people that. That was what I acknowledged a second ago. I will hand people that and that being really frustrating. Terribly, terribly obnoxious. There had to have been a better way you could have introduced him into the story except via that. However, everything else, Thomas Hayden Church coming off, he, he was coming off sideways at this point, really, really shiny. He really stole the movie. And really, if I may play armchair screenwriter here, I think the way to do it would have been give the Sandman story its own movie. Even if you want to do it with that circular narrative retconning, 
of everything we established in the first movie. Make that its own movie. Make that a story unto, unto itself. That's fine. That's okay. Or even if you absolutely have to start the Secret War story here, the Symbian story, you make that maybe a side point, but you don't full-on introduce Venom yet. Right. Or you maybe do it as maybe the ultimate cliffhanger to the movie. Well, I, again, that's why I think a lot of the criticism was unfair. I think this was meant to be part one of a new story. Like I said, Spider-Man's 1 and 2 is one story, and I think they were starting a new story with this one. There were supposed to be upwards of seven total movies, from what I've read, and Sam Raimi just said, forget it, I'm, I'm done. At, that, at which point they said, okay, well, we'll just leave Spider-Man 3 as the end of the trilogy, and we'll reboot with, uh, as The Amazing Spider-Man once he decided he wanted no more of Sony and their demands. At which point, if they were going to do that, like I said, then you shouldn't have done it. The studio should have just listened. Raimi should have been allowed to come on and do what they paid him to do. And that is to be the voice, be the voice in a way of somebody who knows Spider-Man, who knows the character, knows the history, knows the impact of the storylines, and has a pretty damn good horse sense for what's going to work and what's not going to work. So yes, I put that squarely on the heads of the Sony executives for not listening when Rainey said, no, I don't want to do Venom. Okay, and I'm going to tell you that they should absolutely, and Westward One should absolutely take Sean Hannity off the air and replace him with you and I. However, that ain't going to happen either. Only if I can have Hannity's expense account. <laughs> My point being is, don't hate the don't hate the player. Hate the game, Sean. Don't hate Spider Man Three because of the failure of the studio to let artists make art. They're in this to make money. Spider Man is a property, and they wanted a return on the investment. And again, bean counters and bean counters, accountants, business people. Sometimes, but certainly not always, are not creative people. Not in the sense that we're talking about here. I'm sure, you know, creative accounting and all that. But, you know, they, they are not people who sit and read comic books and go, gee whiz, I'd like to bring this to life. They are people who go, we have these properties, some of which are making money, some of which aren't. Here, go make money with the ones that aren't. Go do something with them. Right. Well, and, and you know what? And And I would also acknowledge here that I really think portraying Venom on screen could have worked. It could have worked. It could have been fine, except for two major problems. I will even admit that they actually, if we're talking about individual scenes in the movie, the scene, the recreation of the bell tower scene was, that was outstanding. Not on. Yeah, it really that was. was. That was one of the highlights of the movie. I would call that and the genesis of the Sandman wherein he actually takes form again to be the highlights of the whole damn thing. I'm right. even going to give a modicum of credit to that smarmy little fuck stick over Grace <laughs> and admit that he played it fairly well, although I was getting sick of him making saying his name a damn catchphrase. Um, <laughs> Hi, but who are you? I'm Donald Ziegler. <laughs> What'd you say? I said, who are you? I'm Dolph Ziggler. But no, the fact is, again, number one, I hate Topher Grace's performance in this movie thoroughly. 
Why? Of it. James Lane wrote him a douchebag character and said, "Here, be a douchebag." And and he and he in fact was a douchebag. This is the Kirsten Dunst conversation all over again. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But again, I think you took a character wherein you could have had a good action-packed movie that would have been more along the lines of what you were talking about earlier. Maybe not quite so much character involved, but more of a more of an action-packed popcorn movie, beat up the bad guys kind of movie, and gone ahead and done Venom for the movie after this, even if you had to do it without Raimi. But instead, you tried to wedge him in there, and it's the it's the, the Harry Osborne problem. You tried to wedge him in there, and you didn't really give this menacing character that should have been really impressive to see on screen the time and development that he really deserved. We didn't get him for very long, and when we did get him, Venom is supposed to be an absolute menacing, horrifying brute. Arguably my biggest problem with the whole damn thing. And this is where I get to the fuck Topher Grace with the pool cue part. Number one, I just don't like Topher. I never have. But when Venom opens his mouth and you expect a transformative alien voice that has taken over his being, a true Jekyll and Hyde effect that would have been impressive, and instead you hear a voice that just makes you think he can be probably defeated by Red Foreman popping up from around the corner, screaming, <laughs> Excelsior, dumbass, and punching him in the mouth, it takes a little punch away from what's supposed to be an intimidating villain. Okay, I- I'm going to ask that you take a breath. Okay. Take a breath. You got, you, got, you, got a scotch, you got a scotch there? Because you're going to need to take a drink. Okay. I have a challenge. Okay. I have a challenge for you. Here's my challenge for you. I'm going to say that you're prejudiced. And, um, and, and it's fine. Lots of people are prejudiced. And I'm going to ask that you divorce yourself from your prejudice for for just a moment and think about right. Spider-Man 3 without any knowledge, any foreknowledge of either two movies okay. or the comic book. Just tabula okay. rosa. You wake up one day and said, here, watch this movie. Okay? Mm-hmm. Watch this movie with these actors. And again, it's tabula rosa here, so you've never heard of Topher Grace. I want you to sit here and tell me, once you know nothing more, nothing about any part of this movie, is Spider-Man Three still a badly constructed movie? Yes. Okay, tell me why. Okay, I'll tell you why. Getting away from the whole Topher Grace problem, and I will admit he made a decent Eddie Brock. As decent as Eddie, my problem is mostly that they made no differences, to, not that many to differentiate him from Venom as he should have been. Right. But just, just looking at it that way, just established that is my main problem with the main one, among others, with the way Venom was portrayed. My other problem with it comes in the way in the way a series of people, a consensus of them, decided that Peter should be portrayed with the black suit. Subtlety, thy name is not Spider-Man 3. 
<laughs> this was the original Spider-Man the Musical. So I blame this for the hilarity, unintentional though it may be, that is Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know what? Yes. And for a good part of the movie, yes, Toby is doing a pretty good job of playing more of a seething, angry, resentful, tense, transformed Peter Parker. Does a fine job of that. I can't even really complain that much about Kirsten Dunst's performance here. Um, I thought they made a perfect waste of Gwen Stacy. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was just kind of, she was just kind of shoehorned in as kind of the way um, Gambit was shoehorned into Wolverine. Oh, yeah. You know, here, here, now will you shut up about it? Okay. <laughs> uh, that really should have been the that really should have been the name of the movie was now can you shut up about it three. Yes, exactly. Here, here's your Gwen Stacy. Here's your fucking Venom. Right. Um, Buy this movie. It turns the whole thing into a big joke butt. It turns something that could have been a good story into something that was trying too hard for kitsch and laughability. It turned into this movie's Batman and Mystery's Batman and Robin. No, no, that's too far. I, I want to hear you. I want to give you as much time as you need. But come on, it didn't turn okay. into a cartoon parody of itself, and a bad one at that. Okay, you know what? You know what? Okay, I will give you that, and I'll tell you why. Batman and Robin is too far because if I'm going to make a comparison, it's Batman Forever. Fine. Because that one, you're correct. Where, where I don't consider Batman Forever necessarily the best of the series. I got to admit, I kind of got a kick out of Jim Carrey's Frank Gorshin impression. So that for me, I thought overall Batman and Batman Forever was an okay movie. It had its redeeming factors, even if it wasn't great. I can't name a good redeeming performance from Batman and Robin. Not a single solitary fucking one. <laughs> um, so yeah, in that sense, you're right. You're right. That's a bridge too far to call this to call this Batman and Robin. But, throughout the entire, the entire movie, um, you know, again, they're playing Peter Parker so over the top, turning into an egotistical horse's ass, even before he puts the black suit on, you've, you've got things like him turning every conversation back around onto... That, that Mary Jane has had every frustration she's having about her career back around to his frustrations with being Spider-Man or the travails of his fame. And doing you've obviously it, never had a conversation with... <laughs> you've never listened to a conversation between men and women before because that made total sense to me. It, it made sense, but sometimes they seem to be going so heavy-handed and so obvious with it that it just wasn't... It just wasn't that enjoyable. That enjoyable. Sean, have watch. you ever actually heard a woman say to a man, "I don't want you to solve my problems. I just want you to listen to me. I want to feel heard." Many times. 
okay, that was every almost every scene between Mary Jane and Peter in this movie. I thought it was. I thought they nailed it. As a matter of fact, and if that was okay. what if the effect was, if that was if that was the chapter we were in in the saga that is Mary Jane and Peter Parker, then that is what we got. You can say that's not what I want to see in this movie, but you can't say it was badly done because it was. It, it was exactly that. There were there were scenes where it did come across well. There were scenes where it came across better than others. Um, I feel like you just like like their interpretation of what Spider Man was at this juncture of his life was just not something you agreed with. It was like you were you're sitting there and you're watching this and you're going, I don't want Spider Man to be that, be something else, and that's the issue. And you wouldn't be well, alone. I mean, there was a lot of people's issues with this. Well, and and you know the first about. The first about act of the movie really isn't that bad in that regard. Um, I felt also like the whole like the whole arc with Harry also kind of created some pacing issues with it at times because again it was trying to shoehorn too much in there and they couldn't really take it out because at this point it was so ingrained and you couldn't just forget it happened. You couldn't just forget it existed. You had to resolve it. So you really painted yourself. They really painted themselves into a corner by that point. Um, Here's where I agree with you on something. I thought they handled. Look, I don't think Spider-Man Three is a bad movie. Um, there's a lot about it that I can defend and I will continue to defend. But if you were to say, Mark, I'm going to put a gun to your head, and, and unless you tell me one thing you don't like about this movie, other than how they handled Venom, which again I just I forgive them for because it was gun to their head saying Venom has to be in this movie. Oh fuck, how do we do it? Um, the way the the way they handled Harry Osborn, I thought sucked. And my big yeah. issue with it is the same issue I have with a lot of television shows, which is we've written this much story. Did you watch Eureka? Uh, you know, I came in, I came into it kind of late and kind of started getting caught up. Um, I think I'm on about oh, I think I'm a couple episodes into season three on Netflix right now. Okay, not to give too much away because I really I enjoyed Eureka. If you can forgive them for the one lazy bit of writing that they would do, which is they would write themselves to the end of a story, and instead of coming up with a creative way to continue with that story, they would just go fuck it and hit the reverse button or hit the reset button. New new universe. We're just new universe. Everything's different now, and go. Stand and back! I'm it, going to slide science. <laughs> so. That was kind of how they handled Harry Osborn. It was, okay, um, we can't just do a new two-hour movie and and wait till the end of it to get to these two. So we'll do it in the first act, and then after we resolve it in the first act, we'll hit him on the head so he has amnesia. <laughs> and that way we don't have to deal with this anymore until much later on in the film. I'm like, oh, that's just lazy. Yeah, um... And really, it was after it was after the Peter versus the second Peter versus Harry fight, the one in the Osborne Mansion, that it really started to get too sickeningly stupid. And Mark, if I have to explain to you what I mean by that, you mean a bomb blowing up inches from the guy's face, and all he has is some superficial scarring. Okay, that too. <laughs> um, no, I'm talking. I'm talking about the montage. Spider-Man goes disco. 
Oh. Oh, my God. Okay. I, I know we have to talk about everyone hates Spider-Man dancing, but I didn't think we were quite there yet. No, oh, no. We can hold off on that on that if you want to. Um, but... You, you were, you were and we went off a little side here, but you were saying, look, I asked you a question and you said, nope, it's still a bad movie and here's why. Okay, so we've established... Okay, okay well, all right, I'll, I'll get a little more into that then. I feel like this movie is where the character development really, and maybe it was because they were just trying to wrap it up, to where it really did hit a wall as far as the development being organic because in the other movies it was actually the events and trials and travails of balancing Peter's personal life with being Spider-Man that really set all the character development and development in motion and really Do you not think that him turning into a complete self-centered asshole was a natural progression from where he was in the second film? In the second film well, he doesn't know... In the in the first film, he, he 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 doesn't know what to do with any of this stuff, and he's making a, a ton of shit mistakes. And then at the end of it, he goes, "Fuck it, I'll be a martyr." In the second one, he can't make up his mind what he wants to be, and then he finally, at the end of it, says, "Well, I must be I must be both of these things." And now that I am both of these things, what am I going to do with being both of these things? Well, I'm a I'm a young kid whose whose parents are dead, whose uncle was shot. I've got some problems. I'm probably going to be an asshole until something happens to knock me out of it, like maturity okay. or an event. Right. Uh, however, and yeah, it, it starts out that way. It starts out with seeing a little more of a subtle transformation, but the events that really carry through most of through most of the movie, it's hard to really say they're happening organically because they're happening mostly because it's the soup talking. <laughs> so it's. Man, you know, I don't, I don't want to go and liken it to the Iron Man, you know, story of Tony Stark and of Tony Stark and the the demon in the bottle story storyline. Forgive me if it's the devil in the bottle and I got that wrong, um, because I think that's maybe a little, a little letting things happen a little more naturally, but throwing in the obvious influence of the suit it feels like by the end of the movie things have ended up where they are not necessarily because of Peter's progressions through his through his actions but mostly because okay I was feeling a, feeling a little bit angry I was being a little bit being a little bit of a dick suit exaggerated it took the suit off okay suit's off I'm fine now da 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 and just everything's kind of hunky dory at the dory at the but end but it's of it. not I don't think that's fair because I think I think that the trick lies in what you said initially, which I actually wholeheartedly agree with. There's what he was naturally due to the circumstances of his life at that point, and then it gets amplified by this suit, and it takes him to a and it takes him to a denouement where he punches Mary Jane, and he realizes at that moment, hey, wait a minute, I've let this thing take me too far. I must be rid of it. Because while the feelings are still there, it would have never have gotten to that actionable point. I don't understand what's wrong with that story. I think that's a great story. 
Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Pretend it's not an alien suit. Pretend it's mm-hmm. drugs. Okay. Oh, okay. I see where you're going with this. I see where you're going. Yeah, I could pretend that. However, that's kind of not what happened, though. But it is. Um, I see, again, I see where you're going. But overall, I just thought that it was, it was far more goofy, largely. And it was too much of a departure from everything that was done. It was almost like in a lot of ways they took the things that they did right in the first two movies and then just decided this time that motivated by fuck it, Sony says so, we're going to do just the opposite for the most part with it. You know what it reminds um, me of? You know what it reminds me of? And I think this is where you and I can find some degree of agreement. And it also will explain okay. why I'm defending it and you're trying to convince me it's terrible. It's Revenge yeah. of the Sith. Oh, God. Revenge right. of the Sith didn't know what it wanted to be. All it knew was it had to tie things up, and it had to fold things neatly into an already established universe. Mm-hmm. Revenge of the Sith didn't know if it wanted to be a comedy, a tragedy. It didn't know if it, it didn't know if it wanted to be an adult movie or a children's movie. It was schizophrenic. It was it was as confused and as. Uh, addle-brained as a movie could possibly be without it being some sort of Ed Wood short film fuckery. Okay? That's essentially, I think, the problem you and I are having with Spider-Man 3. And that is kind of stuff that I've talked about with the first two movies, which is tone. Tonally, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing with this thing. Because is it a love story? Is it an action movie? Is it both? Is it a trage? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? We don't know. We're kind of writing this. Uh, <laughs> we're just kind of writing this by the seat of our pants here because we don't know when Dad's going to walk in and say, "Now you're going to add a big, ta- a big giant spider and a gay effeminate robot." How do you like that? <laughs> apple? And, so oh. and so I'm sure by the end of it, Sam Raimi just said, "Fuck it, I don't care what you you, you ask, yes, master. I will put anything in this movie that you want me to. I will, I will put anybody in this movie that you want me to. I just want to be rid of this thing." And, and, and while, go ahead. Well, well, to me, what it also is, though, do, do you get the where I'm coming from? Well, yes, I do get what you're coming from, and I agree. I agree that's a large part of the crux of my problem. But my other problem is I see so many things encapsulated in this movie that Sony absolutely wasted that should have been critical parts of the Spider-Man lineage. And that is things like, I know you told me to ignore having read the comics and all and all that, but... That's hard for me to do. That's hard for me to do because I see someone, like, and particularly, again, when it comes to the love interest, for starters. Okay, you don't want to do anything with Betty Brandt. Okay, that's largely a fairly insignificant part of his life in the long, in the long run. Even though I thought Elizabeth Banks was actually pretty entertaining in her few cameo roles. So kudos to her for that. Um, but you really wasted... Gwen Stacy and not portraying that pivotal part of Spider-Man of Spider-Man's develop 
development as a hero and you know Peter Parker's sacrifice as a person. Um, I will admit that for as much as no, I don't like Topher Grace, and I hated hearing that voice come out of Venom's craw. He didn't do a terrible job in every scene with it. In every scene with Eddie Brock, um, even though I thought he was trying to go for funny and cutesy snarky sometimes. Hang on there. Hang on a second. Bear with me. There was another one that I had in mind. Oh, yes. And of course, as we've established, the fact that instead of really having the transformation of Harry Osborne properly into the Green Goblin and once more portraying was done so well in the comics, and that is how sometimes Peter's life as Spider-Man turns his friends into enemies. Instead, we really get just a half-assed development of what could have been a very good storyline. Um, although, again, as we've established by that point, what else could they do? They had to get themselves out of that corner somehow. Right. Um, In all honesty, what they should have done was they should have ended Spider-Man 2 with the, with uh, Harry becoming... They, they, at some point in Spider-Man 2, they should have had, um, probably about the, about the time that he pays Doc Ock to go find him, the, the Doc Ock uh, should have been joined by... Uh, the the green the, the new green goblin and they should have concluded that storyline in the second movie dragging it out into the third movie I thought was not the best choice but again it's it's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking and I'm I'm kind of going against what I said at the top of this thing which is this is the movie they gave us judge it by judge it by what it is not by what we want it to be and I, okay you know, I will I will halfway concede that maybe it's not as bad as I'm making it out to be, but I'm still by no means going to call it good. Um, no, and, good and here's, here's what I'll tell you. Like I said, tonally it's schizophrenic. Um, it's a lot of mishmash. I think, I, I think for my, for, I think my, my umbrage is I hear the attacks and I don't think the attacks are appropriate. So things like um, attacking the, the dancing in and of itself. Uh, things like attacking the use of Venom. Look, it is what it is. And I think where the, the, where the movie has problems is it's muddled in parts. Um, it's sort of, it's, as I said, it's got these weird tonal qualities to it. But, okay, so it's not a great movie. Got it. I, 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 I can now come and, and say, okay, I agree. It's not, it, it is not a great movie. It's not even as good as the first two. However, no, it is I, not as bad as everyone's making it out to be, number one. And number two, I think if you're just talking about characters and character development and who are these people, it's a fine movie. You know, if you forget for a moment that this is about a guy who, who has spider powers and he fights, you know, and he fights uh, evil scientists that turn into monsters, if you forget about that part of it and just focus on... Uh, a very, very awkward, dysfunctional guy chasing after a dysfunctional girl and all the problems that are in. The movie's fine. Now, I will also, again, and I keep coming back to this because I like to cling to what positive from this movie I can draw from it. <laughs> and that is, I really, really wish they would have just made this a Sandman story. I agree. I really do. Because... 
my hats off to Thomas Hayden Church because, and I think it's a shame he hasn't gotten even more higher profile roles after this and Sideways because... Oh, I agree with Sideways. I don't know about this one, but Sideways, yes. so hard out of the park with this. You know, and it was... And he did it with such little screen time as he was really given. Yeah, here, here's what, the way, if they were going to shoehorn Venom into this, they needed to have gone back and dealt with the Harry storyline in the second movie. Again, but again, hindsight's twenty twenty, and who knew what what the intentions were uh, while, while they were doing this. But in a perfect world, the Harry Osborne, the Osborne storyline concludes in the second movie, and in the third movie, it's just the Sandman and Venom. You know, and you do half of the movie as uh, the as the black costume Spider Man fighting the Sandman, and he deals with that villain about midway through, and about that time, you know, and maybe like kills him or something, and then you know, and then realizes that the suit has taken him, and it punches Mary Jane, and the suit has taken him too far, and he do, do, does away with the suit, and then the second half of the movie is Venom trying to kill him. And then him trying okay. to, and then him trying to rebuild this relationship with Mary Jane, and you know, and fix all the stuff that that he trashed with the black costume. That would have made okay. for a better movie. And again, you know, I, I think that would have been stronger, and that's in part because Thomas Hayden Church really followed in the footsteps well of Alfred Molina and Harry and Harry Osborne <laughs> and uh, Willem Dafoe in that he took the villain and in the classic Marvel style humanized him. Right. And he did it in a way that even neither of the previous two did in that he truly was sympathetic as we established from the get-go in that it's not like he's innocent. It's not like he doesn't have blood on his hands. But he's got somewhat of an understandable motivation. He's, he's in a way almost sort of the Jean Valjean of this movie. Um, and he really comes full circle by the end of it. Never really necessarily setting out explicitly to make an enemy of Spider-Man. Spider-Man just happens to be in his way. That's, right. that, that's, kind, that's kind of the issue there. And Church betrays that so subtly. It's, he's one of those actors that if you're not one of those people who grew up watching him in his breakout role on NBC's Wings, where he was really kind of, and again, another, uh, another sitcom reference is going to really date me to my audience here. Um, he, was, he was really the locked-up Ravis of that show. Sure. In that he, he was a dim-witted, funny bit character. He was Lowell Mather, the, the funny, kind of slow, but good-hearted He was Cheers. Precisely, precisely. Except Woody was such a moron, you wondered how much he was really acting. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, as we find out later, oh, Woody Boyd was not that, that far removed from Woody Harrelson, necessarily. Um, nope, they were separated only by but, hemp pants. Yeah, largely. Um, but Church, as he would prove in Sideways right before this, actually does a very intelligent guy. Uh, he's, he's very nuanced, almost to the point that you could almost... You could almost kind of see how he kind of made comedy and really getting into character and 
an art on wings, kind of the same way... He is betrayed by the screenwriting of this film because he is, a, instead of being a character, he is a device. And I actually give credit to the, the writers of this thing by giving a device so much of a backstory and humanization. But ultimately, that's all he is in this movie. Is he's a device to he's a device to give Spider-Man something to do while you know they link. Um, an old storyline to the storyline that they really wanted to make money off of. You know, ultimately, if Sony was going to put a gun to Raimi's head and say, do Venom, they should have just done Venom. Well, now, now here's the thing. If you will let me kind of, kind of Monday morning quarterback here just for a second. Um, Mark, have you watched much of The Office no, um, I tried both versions, and I, I can't do it. Okay, how, how far did you get into NBC's The Office before you gave up on it? Pilot. The, the pilot, really? Oh, <laughs> ouch. Um, you want to talk some okay. 30... There was a cute little girl that I, that was an intern of mine when I worked uh, at a community mental health center. Nice little Christian girl, and we, de- we developed a um, uh, Alec Baldwin... Who's the broad on that show? Thirty Rock. I don't watch Thirty Rock, so I wouldn't know. Um, Tina Fey. We developed sort of a, a, a Tina Fey, uh, Alec Baldwin um, uh, camaraderie, and uh, I know this because she made me watch Thirty Rock. <laughs> she, <'cause> she, <laughs> <laughs> so that's about all of about uh, that's about all the NBC I can put up with. Well, well, well okay. Well, well, here to kind of set up what I'm about to do here. Um, I've always had an opinion about where The Office as a series should have ended. And that is that there is a moment in Steve Carell's final episode on the show. Uh, seen at an airport. You have seen the show. Probably know what I'm about to describe. Um, the whole show, obviously, the device is it's a big documentary that's supposed to be following around the lives of the workers of the Scranton, Pennsylvania branch of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Um, that's kind of what the premise is from the start of the show. Well, as the iconic Michael Scott is, is at the airport getting ready to leave, he's uh, he, he actually quips at one point, you guys let me know when this is actually going to air, right? And then he goes and, and he takes his lapel mic off, and after something he he mutters his uh, his innuendo catchphrase, that's what she said, but it's it's <laughs> silent because he's not mic'd anymore. And it holds on this shot of him walking toward the terminal. And you see you see him still in the distance as um, uh, Pam Beasley, the, or well now Pam, uh, Pam Halpert by this point because she's married, um, comes running up into the shot after really having been absent the entire episode and being the only real major player in Michael's life that he hasn't said goodbye to. And it just holds silently on them as people mill about them. Doesn't zoom in or anything, and then you just see them hug and then it kinda cuts it kinda cuts to black. And I've always said that's where the series should have ended. Instead it went on it's gone on for another agonizing two seasons and change. Um so let me kind of do the same thing with Spider Man three here. The way I would the way I would have ended it, I think, the, what I think would have been a great ending to it would have been for the bell tower scene to be the final moments of the movie. So 
some way or another. I know that means you got to probably restructure the Sandman fight and everything. But then you let that set up doing, really introducing Venom as a character throughout whatever movies might come might come next. Even if you got to get new actors, even if you got to get a new director. You know, it, hell, it didn't stop Warner Brothers with Batman. Why the hell should it stop here? Um, you just kind of let that run through your next series of movies and let somebody else who wants to do that story do it. And because that way, you can even get to maybe such an epic story as maybe the Maximum Carnage story down the line. Um, right. You could adapt it a little bit a little bit to do that because then you're adapting another character that's going to be just larger than light and could be so well portrayed on portrayed on the screen. But instead, no, Sony felt like they wanted to just get it all in one shot so then they could just reboot it with The Amazing Spider-Man. And it resulted in, as we've agreed it is, an absolutely totally schizophrenic mishmash of a movie that takes so many elements that could have been what they so much more than what they ended up being and just waste them instead of taking somewhat of a less is more approach and just trying to do one thing at a time instead of trying to perpetually multitask. Right. Well, so, we're going to sort of lurch towards conclusion here. Not, not immediately. I'm not going to just throw the curtain down here. Um, we have more talking to do. But I do want to move us towards an end of this discussion. Um, I think you and I are mostly saying the same thing. Um, I'm more forgiving of the movie, just like I am of the Lucas prequels, um, yeah, of other uh, other movies. I'm, I, I've, I rewatched Rocky V, and we'll talk about that when we finally do that podcast, but I've actually come to grips with that movie as well. I've, for whatever reason, I, I've just, in my old age, um, I, I'm looking back at a lot of these movies, and I, and I just refuse to um, beat the hell out of these movies for, what I, for, for not being what I wanted them to be or for not being um, as good as they should have been. It's just, it is what it is. And while there are structural problems with the movies, tone problems with the movies, plot problems with the movies, um, I've seen worse. Yeah. I've seen worse. It was called Showgirls. Um, I, no, I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen worse movies. I've seen worse comic book movies. Um, Daredevil, Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, Fantastic Four, Fantastic Four 2, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Um, the, you know, you've, there's a long way to go before... Uh, you can say, this is so bad it should be studied. The good things about this movie, obviously, you know, you're t the, the, the acting, um, again, you cannot like an actor, but you can't, but unless the performance itself is bad, James Franco, um, it, it's not fair to attack the actor for his performance. Topher Grace's performance was passable. He was a douchebag. Well, okay. That's what they hired him for. Kirsten Dunst. What? Hang on. Kirsten Dunst, um, we we talked about her earlier. She played she played the role that was written. Tobey Maguire played the role that was written, as did every other character in this movie. The performances, save for James Franco, were fine. Um, yeah. The, the 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 crux of this thing, and I said this before. Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi made it very clear from the very first movie, and it's the one thing that's a constant through all three movies. These movies are not about Spider-Man. They 
are about Peter Parker and Mary Jane and their yes. tumultuous relationship. And, 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 and that is what anchors this entire series. And for that reason alone, I don't beat up on Spider-Man 3 because that's the one of the things they handled right. Now, you can, you, we can throw all kinds of you know, stuff at how they handled the superhero element of it, and I'm sure that's why I think a lot of people shit on it, is they went to the movies to watch a superhero movie, and what they got was a very tragic love story. And who the hell wants to see that when you want to see Spider-Man punch Venom in the mush? But you know what? Sometimes you, know, you, you don't get what you want. You get what they give you, and what they gave you was about 50% good. Uh, true, and you know, I uh, let me stress something. Both a couple things, both to you and to everybody else who listens to this. First off, I want to quote one of my favorite online re- online reviewers, and by all means, yes, it's a plug to go check her out at that guy with the glasses dot com. Um, Hagen uh, once said, "Nobody complains like a fan." <laughs> um, you know. In a lot in terms of a lot of these franchises we're talking about, we're not really complaining necessarily because we just hate these movies out and out from the get-go. It's because we wanted something that we could like, or even initially we got something that we could like, and it turned into something that we absolutely hated, and that just it it absolutely wasn't wasn't enjoyable. Um, so we're not complaining because we hate Spider-Man just like as you know the Amanda pointed out when she said that she wasn't complaining when she was snarkily reviewing bad episodes of Doctor Who you know she wasn't saying it because she doesn't like Doctor Who she was saying it because she loves Doctor Who and wants to see it be all it can be we're saying that because we see beloved franchises like Spider-Man the Fantastic Four Ghost Rider the Incredible Hulk right down the line and when it's something that not just doesn't live up to expectations but something that's just be flat out bad by any standards you know <laughs> that's a problem for us as, as we're going to get to when we talk about paranormal activity um, I absolutely love the first two paranormal activity movies two of my favorite movies of all time and I know it's neither love it or hate it franchise the last two have had me Tasmanian devil screaming, cursing, pissed <laughs> because I've just been so dumbfounded at how something that was going so well could be taken downhill in such stupid directions so damn quickly after knowing very clearly what works. Um, and we're going to get to that with a lot of franchises we're going to be talking about. But that brings me to my second point, and that is, you know, you, you kind of snark that... Um, talking about comparing it to Showgirls. No, I mean, there, there's also a difference there as well in that Showgirls is something that's so inept we can laugh at and so enjoy it. Uh, the Room, Birdemic, these movies are the same are the same way. A lot of the movies that Jeremy Lambert and I talk about on, on Bad Movie Review Club, for as much as we snark about them and rail about them, I really like a lot of them. I, I could watch a lot of these absolutely anytime and get a good charge out of them. Nude Nuns with Eric Big Guns is awesome. What'd you say? Nude Nuns with Big Guns is awesome. Yes, see, exactly. There's a difference between Nude Nuns with Big Guns and 
Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie, which I actually feel some remorse for subjecting Jeremy to. Anyway. <laughs> um, but in this case, no, this was just bad as in... No, yes, yes, we didn't get what we expected because we went, because in my case, I went to the theater expecting a good movie with my impressions and my expectations pretty well ingrained from the first two Spider-Man movies and how thoroughly I enjoyed those. But much like with X-Men The Last Stand, which we'll get to down the road too, I'm sure, um, I got a movie that not only didn't meet my expectations, it flew in the face of them and just completely ignored them up to that point. So, I mean, in a sense, this is an example of what Long Road to Ruin is really all about. Not just us bitching about bad franchises, but us looking at the whole course of franchises. So, And that's one of the reasons why... Um I wanted to do. I, I, I wanted to talk about uh, the Spider-Man series. Was um, well, it, it's fun to talk about movies. Spider-Man Three is, and it's why we spent you know most of this podcast that was that could be heard intelligibly, really talking about uh, all the various issues there are with it. You know, I, look, I didn't go to film school or anything like that, but I think I know movies pretty well, and. I want to talk about, you know, the meat of these movies and really examine them from not just a, a plot by point, a plot, plot by plot, point by point recap, but really, you know, looking at, well, why do they do this and that and the other thing? Spider-Man 3, uh, I'm sorry, Spider-Man, the, the Sam Raimi trilogy, again, the reason why I wanted to talk about it was there's a lot of really interesting things about it, good, bad, and ugly. Um, and I think it makes for an interesting discussion. And I think we've had a very well, interesting discussion. Well, well right. And, and to be fair, I mean, the position that you're in right now, I'm going to find myself in when we talk about the Transformers trilogy. Because, and don't get me wrong, don't any one of you make a mistake. That is still a clusterfuck that appalls me. <laughs> um, however, however... I will cop to enjoying the first movie more than a lot of people did. Um, it was tolerable to me. I remember seeing it with my then fiance, and I said that I didn't think it was that bad, and she left the theater railing about it. Um, now, my expectations or my impressions are right up there with the rest of you when it comes to Revenge of the Fallen and Dark Side of the Moon. The first movie, I actually didn't mind it. So I'm probably going to be kind of in your position when it comes to a lot of people. People are going to be wondering how I could possibly say that I enjoyed it. Um, I know that uh, Jeremy Lambert wants to guest with us on that just because he is giddily prepared to defend the joy of Michael Bay. <laughs> That's um, why. But if you go into a Michael I'm, Bay expecting Hamlet, you should check yourself into an asylum. Well, exactly. And that was why I kind of had my misgivings from the very time he took over the franchise. Because I thought, if you're going to bring Transformers to the big screen, there's got to be somebody else who can handle this. Somebody, Depends on what you want to do. If you want to make a movie where monsters destroy a city, you get Michael Bay. If you want to get uh, a movie about people, you get not Michael Bay. <laughs> well... But the thing is, though, is 
and I, well, and I don't want to get too much into it because then we're just going to start getting off on a tangent, just eating up time. But I mean, that's one where even for Michael Bay, I didn't really expect the direction that he went with it. Um, I thought the first one for being a Michael Bay effort was was okay. I mean, it was. Oh, what's what's the best comparison? It, it wasn't like it was Pearl Harbor bad. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was it was Armageddon bad, but it wasn't Pearl Harbor bad. Um, those last year though, that was just a new universe of uh, terrible. Let me um, uh, let, let let's conclude this way, Sean. Let me ask you. Through the course of the Spider-Man trilogy, the most important question is this, and I'm going to ask this at the end of every one of our long road to ruin. Were you not entertained? (laughs) Well said, Maximus. I was entertained. The long road to ruin, um, you know, we call the show that because by the end of a lot of these series, they've done fucked up the movies beyond all recognition. (laughs) It's foobaw. Um... But at the end of the day, we're all fans, and and it really comes down to, were we entertained? Uh, maybe some more so than others, and maybe some movies were more entertaining than others, but I think we can both agree that all three movies were on some level entertaining. Uh, thank you for listening to this, uh, this week's edition of The Long Road to Ruin. And be sure to check out Spider-Man No Way Home this weekend in theaters exclusively. Also, make sure you check out our review of Spider-Man No Way Home this Tuesday night on Damn You Hollywood. This is Mark Rattledge saying, be well, be safe, and behave.